My approach. My approach to this toolkit, as well as my work overall, is informed by a series of principles. In this section, I will walk you through these principles, as well as how they show up in this toolkit. Principle number one. Show, don't tell. This toolkit is less about me coming back from an expedition and recounting what I discovered, and more about me taking you on the journey with me. You'll notice that reflective exercises and somatic practices are integrated throughout the toolkit rather than concentrated at the end. This is intentional and is reflective of the pauses that I've needed to take to discern how something applies to me and to process and integrate the pieces of my understanding that come undone with each discovery. I invite you to pause with me. In the lectures, I ask you the same questions that I've asked and continue to ask myself. I am in process, and the design of this toolkit is a reflection of that. Principle number two, the body as a generator, holder, and conveyor of knowledge. I believe that this is work that must be done in partnership with our bodies if it's to be sustainable and transformative. Much of the training around unconscious bias is focused on the mind and ignores the body as a generator, holder, and conveyor of knowledge. In the words of trauma specialist Resma Menicum, quote, our bodies have a form of knowledge that is different from our cognitive brains. This knowledge is typically experienced as a felt sense of constriction or expansion, pain or ease, energy or numbness. Often this knowledge is stored in our bodies as wordless stories about what is safe and what is dangerous. The body is where we fear, hope, and react, where we constrict and release, and where we reflexively fight, flee, or freeze. If we are to upend the status quo of white body supremacy, we must begin with our bodies." End quote. While Menachem talks about working with the body specifically in the context of unlearning white body supremacy, our bodies also carry the embodied strategies that help us uphold other systems of oppression as well. Somatics practitioner Stacey K. Haynes explains that, quote, our habits and our survival strategies live within our tissues. Our automatic ways of reacting, relating, and thinking are driven from much deeper in our brains, hearts, and muscles than our ideas about them. These embodied strategies are also protective and taking care of previous hurts. Somatic opening allows what has been stored in the body to come forward and be felt. It allows what has been left incomplete to complete holistically. This aspect of transformation can feel disorganizing, unsettling, and often means we are touching our pain. Without it, however, we are placing new practices on top of old embodied strategies, and under enough pressure, the old strategies will win out. Thus, we need to allow the roots to come up and to give them their respects. On the positive side, this can feel like setting down weights that you've been carrying for years." End quote. As Haynes alludes to in this passage, what we may think of as best practices or standard ways of working 
may actually be serving as a protective function in safeguarding previous hurts. In my view, many of the harmful practices that we engage in within the field of research are informed at least in part by collective and individual trauma responses. And because trauma lives in and is a tool of the body, it must also be worked with and healed through the body. In talking about trauma and taking a trauma-informed approach to this toolkit, I think it's important to define and contextualize what I mean. What follows are a series of excerpts from Resma Menikam's book, My Grandmother's Hands, that clarify what is meant by this increasingly used term called trauma. Quote, Contrary to what many people believe, trauma is not primarily an emotional response. Trauma always happens in the body. It is a spontaneous protective mechanism used by the body to stop or thwart further or future potential damage. Trauma is not a flaw or a weakness. It is a highly effective tool of safety and survival. Trauma is also not an event. Trauma is the body's protective response to an event or a series of events that it perceives as potentially dangerous. This perception may be accurate, inaccurate, or entirely imaginary. In the aftermath of highly stressful or traumatic situations, our soul nerve and lizard brain may embed a reflexive trauma response in our bodies. This happens at lightning speed. An embedded trauma response can manifest as fight, flee, or freeze, or as some combination of constriction, pain, fear, dread, anxiety, unpleasant and or sometimes pleasant thoughts, reactive behaviors, or other sensations and experiences. This trauma then gets stuck in the body and stays stuck there until it's addressed. We can have a trauma response to anything we perceive as a threat, not only to our physical safety, but to what we do, say, think, care about, believe in, or yearn for. This is why people get murdered for disrespecting other folks' relatives or their favorite sports teams. It's also why people get murdered when other folks imagine a relative or favorite team was disrespected. From the body's viewpoint, safety and danger are neither situational nor based on cognitive feelings. Rather, they are physical, visceral sensations. The body either has a sense of safety or it doesn't. If it doesn't, it will do almost anything to establish or recover that sense of safety. A traumatic response usually sets in quickly, too quickly to involve the rational brain. Indeed, a traumatic response temporarily overrides the rational brain. It's like when a computer senses a virus and responds by shutting down some or all of its functions. This is also why, when mending trauma, we need to proceed slowly so that we can recover the body's functions without triggering yet another trauma response. End quote. In this sense, incorporating an awareness of and an engagement with our bodies in this work is an essential part of ensuring that it's both sustainable and trauma-informed. You will see somatic practices incorporated into various modules, including a module which interrogates the mind-body split and disembodiment as they show up within research and academic practices. A note on the use of somatics in this toolkit. 
I begin this section with a quote from Prentice Hemphill from their podcast, Finding Our Way. Quote, More and more teachers are coming out about their practice of somatics and what it means inside of their own identities and their culture. There are more places to look than those folks that have written the quote-unquote official books on somatics. It's important for us to keep looking in our own lives and in our own histories for the root of embodiment. End quote. Much of the theory and references to somatics in this toolkit are informed by the book The Politics of Trauma by Stacey K. Haynes. I would consider this resource, in Hemphill's words, one of the quote-unquote official books on somatics. Haynes also identifies as a white woman, and I believe this is important to name as it's in direct contradiction with my intention to center BIPOC practitioners and leaders in this toolkit. As someone who is relatively early in my study of somatics, drawing on Haynes's book as a reference point helped me learn the lay of the land within the field, including key vocabulary, principles, and practices. It felt like the lesser evil among all of the other quote-unquote official books on somatics, given how consistently Haynes incorporates a political analysis, uplifts the work of BIPOC practitioners working within the field, and credits BIPOC-led organizations like Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, or BOLD, and the National Domestic Workers Alliance for her learnings around somatics. Still, there is room to do better. Prentice Hemphill and Resma Menicum are both Black leaders within the field of somatics and have recently been sharing more of their practice through resources like My Grandmother's Hands, Finding Our Way podcast, and the Embodiment Institute. There are many others, and I commit to sharing and amplifying their work as I discover and learn from them. I invite you to do the same. To begin, what follows are a few quotes from Prentice Hemphill that invite a more critical exploration of the lineage and whitewashing of somatics. These quotes were originally transcribed and shared in a social media post by Daria from Accountability Mapping. Quote, the Western world puts a name on things, often a white guy's name on things, and pretends it's new. But all of our cultures have practices. Most cultures are practices around embodiment. Our dancing, our singing, our relationship to land, the places where we make contact, the stories we create to make meaning of our lives, all of that, to me, is somatics. End quote. Quote, the word somatics exists in a Western context to point out the break that happened between our minds and our bodies. Somatics doesn't make sense in some ways without that break having happened. It's a term and a field of study that emerges from that break of colonization. But before that, we still practiced embodiment. Before that, there were still practices across the world that helped us feel ourselves and feel our internal worlds. End quote. Quote, There's absolutely a whitewashing of the field, but it's also because we have not been taught to look at our own practices as knowledge. 
We're not always trained to look at the little morsels of truth that have been passed down through the subtlest of movements and motions. So to me, that's what somatics is really about. End quote. Principle number three, honoring lineage. Lineage is a lens that can be summarized in a single question. Who, what, or where does this come from? Where this could be a belief, a conviction, a best practice, a framework, a definition, a behavior, a trait, a norm, a habit, a construct, or a rule. One of the resistances to revisiting history or exploring where something comes from is the idea that the past is past and no change can come from dwelling on it. It's the notion that revisiting the past is irrelevant and regressive. The dominant culture separates the past, present, and future as though they are not connected. It also assumes that our current understanding of the past and our present is the only understanding of it, and that it's accurate. The practice of tracing lineage necessarily questions these assumptions. Author Yuval Noah Harari offers an alternative perspective on the importance of studying history and lineage in his book, Homo Deus, A Brief History of Tomorrow. Quote, Historians study the past not in order to repeat it, but in order to be liberated from it. The cold hand of the past emerges from the grave of our ancestors, grips us by the neck, and directs our gaze toward a single future. We have felt that grip from the moment we were born, so we assume that it is a natural and inescapable part of who we are. Therefore, we seldom try to shake ourselves free and envision alternative futures. Studying history aims to loosen the grip of the past. It enables us to turn our head this way and that, and begin to notice possibilities that our ancestors could not imagine or didn't want us to imagine. Movements seeking to change the world often begin by rewriting history, thereby enabling people to reimagine the future. The new history will explain that our present situation is neither natural nor eternal. Things were different once. Only a string of chance events created the unjust world we know today. If we act wisely, we can change that world and create a much better one. This is why Marxists recount the history of capitalism, why feminists study the formation of patriarchal societies, and why African Americans commemorate the horrors of the slave trade. They aim not to perpetuate the past, but rather to be liberated from it. This is the best reason to learn history, not in order to predict the future, but to free yourself of the past and imagine alternative destinies." End quote. Another source of resistance to revisiting history is linked to what author and educator Ron Scapp identifies as, quote, the profound belief in the legitimacy of all that has come before, end quote. The longer something has been around or the more something is repeated, the more strongly we accept it as the norm and the less we question it. We may also fear that if we start to question what we thought was true, then everything that is linked to it will crumble leaving us with no ground to stand on. This is a legitimate fear, especially given how many of our systems are upheld by precedent and legacy, and there will be spaces and moments in this process to name and evaluate those fears. 
Ultimately, I center lineage in this toolkit because I believe it's a practice that can help us construct a critical understanding of the status quo and how we got here, which is intimately linked to the kinds of alternatives that we are able to imagine in its place. Principle number four, quote the source, a lot. I'm fairly confident that most of what I share in this toolkit has already been shared, thought, or written before. In fact, I see my role in putting together this toolkit as that of a curator. Over the years, my learning and unlearning has been guided by such a range of teachers and practitioners. And this toolkit allows me to bring their perspectives together in conversation in a way that I think allows for a richer and more varied discussion than just one perspective alone. I choose to quote them rather than paraphrase them because I want to honor not just what they said, but how they said it as much as possible. I'm striving not for novelty, but rather robustness. I encourage all users of this toolkit who have the means to honor these practitioners by directly investing in their offerings so that they are well-resourced to continue doing the important work that they are doing in the world. Principle number five, repetition. If you stick around for long enough, you'll notice that while each module speaks to a different topic, there are underlying themes and questions that are repeated throughout the toolkit. While repetition is looked down upon among most editors who assume that the readers will get bored, I use it intentionally here as an opportunity to invite progressively deeper explorations of the topics at hand and the connections between them. Given that you as a vessel may be shifting as you move through this toolkit, I invite you to notice how a particular statement or question lands for you each time you hear it or read it. How does it land in your body? Does your receptivity to it change over time? Does your response to it shift over time? The beliefs and practices that this process calls into question have been reinforced over many, many years. And my sense is that this kind of unraveling will take more than just one attempt. Hence, the repetition. Principle number six, generative refusal. This toolkit strives to embody the practice and principle of generative refusal. I first encountered this concept through the writings of Michi Sagik Nishnabe scholar Leanne Betosamosake Simpson. In her words, quote, generative refusal not only refuses colonialism, but it affirms a different present by generating different worlds, worlds that center the material and spiritual needs of the community, end quote. This toolkit is intentionally not just an expose of all that is problematic in the world of social R&D. It's not meant to be a finger-wagging shame on you to all of us who have caused harm in the name of research. I want more for us than getting stuck in cycles of debilitating shame and guilt that ultimately re-entrench us in the status quo. Generative refusal recognizes that settler colonialism will always define the issues with a solution that re-entrenches its own power. 
It refuses colonial recognition as a starting point. It prioritizes self-recognition and reciprocal recognition instead, which Simpson defines as, quote, the act of making it a practice to see another's light and to reflect that light back to them, end quote. In this vein, this toolkit is intended to give us language to name the harmful practices that we've embodied in the name of research, questions to provoke inquiry into the internal beliefs and external systems that have afforded supremacy to these practices, structure to scaffold and hold the series of thoughts and feelings that may be unearthed in this inquiry, and somatic practices to compassionately hold our bodies as we come to understand that much of the harm that we have and continue to cause are rooted in trauma responses on both the individual and collective level. That said, it is important to caution that colonialism is insidious. It's the water we drink and the air we breathe, and as much as the intention behind this work is to refuse colonial recognition, I want us to be critical and consistent in examining how we might be seeking this recognition in more covert and less obvious ways. With respect to designing this toolkit, the following are some of the critical questions that I'm sitting with for myself. What am I saying, not saying, or saying differently because I am cautious of how it will be received by the predominantly white funders of this work who have most definitely contributed to and enabled the harm that is named in this toolkit? How would I have designed this toolkit differently if I knew it was only for practitioners of color? for women and gender-diverse folks of color, or for children of immigrants? What would I have been more forthcoming about? What would I have spent more time unpacking? What would I have spent less time explaining? How much of the motivation to build a somatic caretaking container around some of the more provocative parts of this toolkit was about trauma-informed design versus preemptively soothing the white fragility that is bound to be activated by engaging in this work. What does it look like to design with care, to design to mitigate harm, and design to hold accountable? How much of my investing a disproportionate amount of time on this toolkit, more than double what was allocated in the budget, was about wanting to be thorough versus being acutely aware of being the sole person of color funded through a call specifically intended to increase accessibility and equity within social R&D. In other words, how much of it was rooted in the awareness that I was a super token representing much more than myself through this work? For me, a commitment to generative refusal means sitting with these questions even and especially when the answers are not clear. 